Hi, I'm Simone Halpin, the executive director of Naomi's House. And since last December, when we partnered with Serve the World and Chapel Street, we have been hard at work building The Gathering Place, the only day program for victims of sexual exploitation in the area. It was in January of 2020 that we felt the Lord was calling us to consider The Gathering Place. We knew that nothing like this existed in our county. So we took the step of faith, we started praying, started asking God, what would this look like? What do women need? What are the resources that we have that we can put together in order to provide a day program that gives more women the opportunity to find hope and healing? This is a place where we can serve up to 40 women a year four times the number of women we've been able to serve in residential. And we are thrilled to see women begin to take advantage of this beautiful space and the services that we can provide educationally, vocationally, therapeutically, so that they can begin again. Hi, I'm Amanda Bagnall. I'm the clinical director of day program services here with Naomi's House. When we had the opportunity to expand services at the gathering place to reach more women, <laughs> I got really excited about what that could look like for our community and for the women that we serve. We have a young woman who's traveling all the way from Chicago on public transportation to receive services here at the Gathering Place. Because we are one of the only day program services that provides this type of care to women who've been exploited, she finds it worth her time to come out here three days a week, travel two hours just to meet with our case managers, do the day program, and receive therapeutic services. God knew and he saw what our needs were and he called up the church to meet those needs. And not only did you raise $200,000 to equip us to close on this space, but you went above and beyond. And through that partnership, we were able to cover all the expenses of the renovation. So we're sitting here today in the most beautiful space, welcoming space, and we're starting to fill it already with women who need to hear that there is hope for their future, that there is healing for their trauma, and that together with this community, with the church, with our volunteers, with our staff, we will walk alongside of them and hope for them that their lives can look different and that they can heal from their commercial sexual exploitation. Well, I, uh, I love hearing those stories of the ministries that we get to be a part of together as Chapel Street Church family. Selfishly, it, uh, I love that our church is involved in that stuff. But I think even more than that, the reason why we share those stories uh, is not so that we can say, woo, look what we got to be a part of. It's so that we can see what God sees. Uh, and I love the part in that video where Simone, the director of the Gathering Place, she says, God saw our needs and he mobilized his people to fulfill them. Right? That's what that story is really all about, is about a God who sees and a God who comes and draws near to those in need. And it's a fantastic opportunity. And we are going to get another opportunity like that one this Christmas season that we will announce next week uh, to partner with uh, an organization and a ministry here in the area to support them uh, and to see God mobilize his people. So I would love for you to be praying with us uh, for that, and we'll share a little bit more about it next week. But before we go into this sermon, let's just... Uh, let's just rejoice together and be thankful that we serve and we love a God who sees uh, and who meets people in need. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the work that is going on at Normie's house uh, and the gathering place. Lord, I thank you uh, that just as someone said, you are a God who sees, 
uh, that you saw those women and the brokenness uh, and the pain in their life and you drew near to them. You mobilized your people. You mobilized women like Simone and Kim and Amanda to come and love and support them. Uh, and God, we pray that you would bless the ministry there, that it would continue. And, and just as they have saw a multiplication of what they are able to do in this last year because of uh, what they have received, God, I pray that they would see another multiplication, that they would see more women served, uh, more families made whole, uh, more women rescued. Lord, thank you, Jesus, uh, for what you're doing. Lord, as we come to your word now, we could pray that you would speak to us, that you'd speak clearly, uh, that your voice would be heard in this place, God, and that we would be transformed by what you have to say to us. We love you, uh, but not as much as you love us, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it is, uh, it is right on Christmas season in the Griffiths household, uh, and what my wife has got in the habit of doing the last couple of years is we will uh, give the kids like a little Christmas magazine that has a whole bunch of different kinds of toys, and the kids will circle the ones that they want. And I remember doing that as a kid. Uh, I remember getting like a, a little catalog. There was a place in England where I grew up called Argos, and Argos, the whole store was built around, uh, they had catalogs of everything they had, and then there was a big storeroom behind and you would uh, punch in the number of the thing that you want, and they would go get it and bring it out. And I loved going there for Christmas because the magazine would be full of all of these crazy things that I wanted. Uh, and I, I love being a dad now. I should say I don't love being a dad now because when I was a kid and I circled things in that magazine, all I saw was the impressive toy. I didn't see like the number underneath it with the uh, dollar sign next to it. Now as a dad, I'm seeing my kids circle this, and I'm, I'm seeing their college fund drain with every single circle that they do because they want all these flashy toys, these incredible things. And, and my question I wonder for us today is, if we could ask God for any gift, what would it be? What's the most glorious gift that God could give you? Could it be, help me find a better job? The gift of a better job. Could it be uh, the silence of those who frustrate you? Could it be that uh, someone could dish out some judgment on those people who have wronged you? Could it be that Jesus would make your children easier to parent, or heaven forbid, your husband or wife more agreeable and compliant? Would it be for your grass to have less weeds and not grow as fast as it normally does? Would it be an amazing increase in your finances, your physical health, your well-being, a predictable schedule? What is the most glorious gift that God could give you? In today's passage in Mark, we are going to hear the story of two of, uh, of Jesus' disciples, James and John, who make a request of what gift Jesus could give them. They're going to ask him for something, uh, and it's pretty shocking what they ask for. It's pretty astounding. But it is a glimpse into our own hearts, into what runs us, what governs us, and what we really want from Jesus. And so as we go through this this morning, I think that we should let God's word be a little bit of a mirror for us to see ourselves. And ask ourselves, what is it that we're asking Jesus for? What's this gift that we think would be glorious for us? So I, I want to read this for you. And before we jump in, I just want to remind you of kind of the time and the setting of where we're jumping into Mark's gospel. We've been going a long way through this story now. And though we're only 10 chapters through this book, that 10 chapters has actually covered multiple years of Jesus' ministry. We don't notice that because we're not seeing a clock tick as we go through. But we're actually towards the very end of Jesus' life now, only a couple of weeks from the cross itself. Uh, and we're going to take a break here for the Advent season uh, because it is kind of a turning point. It's a moment where Jesus, in the last two chapters, has told his disciples three separate times, I'm going to be arrested, I'm going to be condemned, I'm going to be beaten, I'm going to be rejected, uh, and ultimately I'm going to hang on a cross and die. But three days later I'm going to rise again. And the disciples continually 
uh, kind of frustrated and confused by this because they have no idea what it means. And strangely, it's actually a, a time in Mark's gospel where Mark makes very clear to us, Jesus is not trying to tell them a parable. He's not trying to be mysterious. He tells them plainly, this is what is about to happen. And then we jump into this moment where James and John come to him after the third time that he foretells his coming death, James and John come immediately up to him and ask this question. Let's read it together. This is Mark 10, verses 35 through 45. It says, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Grant to us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. And Jesus said to them, You don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we're able. Jesus said to him, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand and my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the 10 heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called to them and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many." This whole series we've called Following the King because we are letting Mark teach us about what it means to follow the king. And in this passage, we're going to see three things that following the king means. First, following the king means submission over status. Second, it means sacrifice over security. And lastly, it means service over self. This is an important lesson. And Jesus is going to teach it to two of his closest disciples. So let's take a look together at what it means that following the king is about submission over status. So I don't know whether I've told this story before, Uh, forgive me if I have, but when I was uh, 14 years old, my sister got married. My sister's a lot older than me, uh, about eight years, Uh, and so I was young, she was a lot more mature, and girls in general are more mature than boys anyway, so really it was like 14 and 30. Uh, And so she was getting ready for a wedding, and uh, because she is a good sister, she said, hey, we would love for you to have a spot in the wedding party, Uh, what would you like it to be? And at 14 years old, To this day, I don't know why I locked onto this, but I decided that the greatest role on earth would be to be the chief usher at this wedding. And I don't know whether in my mind I thought it was because I would be like the security and I could bump the wedding crashes or something like that. Uh, I even made them, (laughs) I made them create credentials for me so that I could flash like, hey, Andrew Griffiths, chief usher, 14 years old, don't have a girlfriend. Uh, Because... I just thought that this was the greatest thing on earth. And really, this was all really given by, I wanted to have a very special place in that wedding. Even though it wasn't my wedding day, it wasn't really about me at all, I wanted to make sure that I had a significant spot on that day. And James and John, in this moment, they're having a conversation with Jesus about having a significant spot in his kingdom. They know that they are headed towards something great, they're headed towards something spectacular, and they want to make sure they have the best seat in the house and that they have a role that's important. This is what they say. They say, the sons of Zebedee, James and John, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want for you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And Jesus, being the calm, cool, collected guy that he is, says, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Now this, uh, if you don't realize, is a pretty astounding thing to ask for. 
James and John are coming up to Jesus. And remember that mere seconds ago, Jesus has just told them that he is currently on the road towards a very, very gruesome death. That his life is going to be forfeit. That he's going to give himself for the sin of mankind. And James and John choose that moment and in that conversation, that context to go, we would like some stuff. Uh, let us ask for you something, something. And Jesus very calmly says, well, what is it you want from me? And they say, we want glory. We want significance. We want to be in the very best spot when all this goes down. When you come in your glory and you have victory over sin and death, we want the best spot in the house. James and John don't really know what they're asking for, as we're going to hear about in a minute. But there's a couple of things I want to highlight that they do get right. James and John in this moment, what they are getting right is they've come to the right person. They know that Jesus is going to be victorious. They know that Jesus is the king. So they're, they're asking about glory to the right person. They just don't understand what it means. They think that their relationship with Jesus exists to provide them with status and privilege and honor above everyone else. Essentially what they're saying is, we want to make sure that no one else gets the good spots. We want to have those. Right? So we're coming to you and we're having a conversation with you because our relationship with you is so that we can get better seats than everybody else. Right? That's why we're following you, is so that we can have the best seats. And Jesus is going to show them that that's not why they should be following him. Reminds me of the scene in Braveheart. Uh, I get a little bit bitter about this movie as an Englishman, but we'll talk about it anyway. Uh, Braveheart, the movie where William Wallace, he's meeting with the nobles of Scotland, and what he says to them, he says that you think that the people of this country exist to provide you with position, and I think your position exists to provide the people of this country with freedom. And what William Wallace is saying is you, you think it's all about your own status and your own glory, but you have been called, you have been put in the position that you are in for the sake of others so that you can provide others with freedom. That's really very close to what Jesus and his disciples were doing, is Jesus was calling his disciples to follow him so that for the sake of Israel, for the sake of the whole world, we might have access to freedom and truth. It shows that even the closest people to Jesus have a tremendous ability to hear only what they want to hear when Jesus talks. Completely missing it. And it reveals what's going on in their hearts. One of my favorite uh, commentators on this passage of the Bible is a guy called John Calvin, lived a long time ago, and he says this. He says, A bright mirror of human vanity is shown in this passage, for it shows that proper and holy zeal is often accompanied by ambition or some other vice of the flesh, so that those who follow Christ have a different object in view from what they ought to have. What's the end goal of knowing Jesus for you? What's your interest in this king? Is it for your own status, your own well-being, for your own glory and greatness, or is it for the greatness of someone else? That's really what this conversation is all about, is it's exposing a malfunction in human hearts. There's something that's gotten very wrong in all of our hearts, in my heart and in your heart, and it's this. It's that we desire greatness for ourselves at the cost of other people. See, God created the world with kind of a, a horizontal sense of greatness that each of us are created distinct and unique in the image of God. And what we have done through sin is we've flipped that on its side to make it vertical. I'm only significant if there's people below me. And I need to be more significant than the ones above me. 
We get dominated by a need for significance and importance and we become enslaved to it, right? This is what all the social media chaos is all about. Do I look nicer than the the student next to me? Do I have a more impressive life? Do I have nicer clothes? And, And let's be honest, even long before Facebook or Instagram came around, this is the game that all human beings have played with each other since the dawn of time. How can I have a better seat than the person next to me? How can my life be more significant, more meaningful, more comfortable, And so this moment in scripture, it's a grace to us because it is exposing that malfunction of us. And Jesus even asks the question that he does. He says, what do you want me to do for you? Not because he doesn't know, but because he knows James and John need to see that there's something wrong in their own hearts. Because he loves them. He wants better for them than they want for themselves. He wants a greater glory than they're asking for. And so Jesus is going to ask them very gently, have a look at yourself right now. Take account of what you're asking of me. And I pray that God would do that for us today. That he would take a moment here to just speak into our hearts and reveal to us where are we living for our own greatness and glory? Where are our ambitions malfunctioning? Let's keep going and take a look at how following the king is about sacrifice over security. About sacrifice over security. Now, if you are a follower of the podcast here at Chapel Street Church for where you are, um, you may have heard that a couple of weeks ago I whenever I go on this podcast, it ends badly for me, usually. But I was on, and at the end of the podcast every week, uh, Pastor Joe asks a question, what Joe wants to know. And for some strange reason, he asked on this particular week, what animal do you think you could beat one-on-one in hand-to-hand combat? And I I suggested, foolishly, a coyote. I think I could beat a coyote one-on-one. To this day, I still think I could. Um, But what happened after that was even worse, because as I made that ridiculous claim, I kind of got sucked into it, and everyone on staff would be like, oh, so you think you can beat a coyote, Andrew? Well, what else do you think you can beat? And at some point, uh, the director of Masterpiece Ministries asked if I could beat a dolphin. Now, if someone asks you, can you beat a dolphin one-on-one, hand-to-hand, if you of course say yes, it's a dolphin. It's like the friendliest animal on earth. Yes, I could take a dolphin out. And I, I, for some reason, got so committed to having to prove that I could beat a dolphin one-on-one, which no one should spend their time committing to. I was having like six conversations about it a day, right? This is what your pastor does. He doesn't read the Bible. He, he convinces people he can beat dolphins one-on-one. And um, eventually, someone decided to pop my bubble, and they, they left a little research packet on my desk of the amount of people who have been killed by dolphins. <laughs> Did you know dolphins are deadly animals? Apparently, like, you cannot beat them, right? They, so anyway, I had my bubble burst. I cannot beat dolphins. It's a shame. But James and John, right, just like me, they're a little zealous. They're a little overconfident in themselves, and they need to have their bubble popped, right? And what we don't often realize about James and John is uh, we don't realize their age, right? We think of James and John because we see movies and TV shows about James and John being these older guys. But James and John were probably far closer to 13 than they were to 20, We know for a fact from different scriptures that they were under 20 years old, uh, but they may have been very young guys, very zealous, and they just had a lot of overconfidence in themselves. This is what Jesus says to them. He says, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink, and with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. 
See, we've already seen that James and John are not very self-aware. They ask bad questions at bad times. But now we see the real heart of the problem is that they have an overconfidence in themselves. They think that they are self-sufficient. Jesus is saying, you don't understand yourselves and you don't understand me. Even though you've walked with me, even though you've seen me on the mountain, you've seen me raise the dead, you still don't understand yourselves and you don't understand me. You think that you're capable and you're self-sufficient and you're not and that's why you need me. So Jesus is trying to help them understand what awaits them if they want to follow into glory. And so what he does is he asks them this question. He says, are you able to drink the cup that I drink and uh, have the baptism with which I'm going to be baptized? And that's, that's a very religious kind of bible phrase for us. But I want to help us understand what that meant. Throughout scripture, the idea of a cup was the symbol that God used to talk about judgment. There's a passage, for example, here in uh, Psalm 75, 8, it says, For the hand of the Lord, for in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. It was this symbol in their, their culture and their, their religion that the cup was God's judgment and wrath upon all of sin and evil in the world. And so when Jesus is talking about drinking the cup, are you able to drink that cup? He's saying, are you able to take the judgment of God? Are you able to go and face the consequences of sin? And even more than that, he's talking about suffering. Right? If we go to Matthew's gospel, right before Jesus goes to the cross, he is in a garden praying to his father, and he says, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. See the difference between Jesus and the disciples? The disciples say, we can drink that. And even Jesus Christ, the son of God, is in that garden say, if it's possible for this cup to pass from me. Not because he can't take it, but he understands the suffering that's involved in taking it. James and John don't understand the suffering that's involved in going towards glory. They think that glory and greatness is something that you just roll into in comfort. And what Jesus is saying is, no, the path to glory is a path of sacrifice and pain and challenge and difficulty. But James and John say, we can do that. We can do anything for you, Jesus. We have everything it takes. And yet in just a couple of weeks, James and John are gonna run away. When Jewish authorities come to arrest Jesus and beat Jesus and spit on Jesus, his two closest friends, where are they? They run away. They flee. Because they don't have what it takes. They can't drink that cup. They can't do it. And Jesus knows that, and that's why he's going to do it for them. That's the whole heart of Christianity is that we are not self-sufficient. We are not able by ourselves. And so God, in his infinite love for us, has come in the person of Jesus Christ to be everything for us that we can't be. He's going to drink that cup, and he's going to go to that cross so that you and I don't have to. See, the men and women who go furthest with Jesus are those that understand their own need and embrace it. It's those that don't say confidently, I'm going to go with you to the cross. I'll do anything for you. It's those that say, Lord, help me in my unbelief. Help me in my weakness. I know I'm not always as courageous as I should be. I know I'm not always as selfless as I should be. I know that I'm not always as giving as I should be. Help me to be what I need to be. So we need to ask ourselves, what have we lost sight of in terms of our needs today? Where have we stopped looking at the places where we need God to come and fill us and strengthen us? That's a hard question. 
because we don't know what we don't know. Maybe all we need to do this morning is to just ask Jesus to speak to us. You know, I think that that's why when Jesus was on the Mount of Transfiguration and God spoke, he said, this is my son, listen to him. Because he knew James and John, those goofy kids, didn't understand themselves and so they needed to listen to Jesus. We need to listen to Jesus today and understand those parts of ourselves that we don't, see those parts of our own heart that we haven't looked at in a while and ask Jesus to come and be what we need him to be. Where are you approaching your faith with a sense of confidence in your ability to grasp and achieve and where have you let go or perhaps not even recognized yet of your need for Jesus, the one who goes for you? Where have you created blinders to your needs? Jesus' final statement to James and John is another kind of cryptic one. He says, I, I, you are gonna drink the cup and you are gonna be baptized with the baptism that I am. And what he's, he's doing is he's predicting the suffering of James and John. Because James and John, even after Jesus has risen from the grave, uh, James is gonna be beheaded for his faith. John is gonna be exiled to Patmos and watch almost everyone else that he walked with in his life uh, be persecuted and killed by the Romans. So there is suffering coming from them, but not like it is for Jesus. And then he says, it's not my place to give you those positions. It's for those that it's, it's been prepared. And again, just really quickly, all that Jesus is saying there is he's saying, position in my kingdom is not about politics. It's not about achievement. It's not about the games that you play or what you've earned. It's about the sovereign plan of God. It's about grace. It's about grace. But James and John are not alone in their dilemma, in their attitude. So let's really quickly look at the other disciples because something's going on with them too. Now, uh, we're going to talk about following the king is about service over self. And uh, when I was thinking about this one, uh, I was thinking about at the same time this week as I came across uh, a video of a football player from a high school football game. I'm not into sports, as many of you know, uh, but uh, I wanted to show you this clip because it really caught my attention. Check this out. I don't know a lot about football, but that was pretty impressive. Um, and I, what struck me about that is that they played the game in a totally different way than the defense was expecting, right? They had no idea what was about to come. He just walked straight through them. And in a lot of ways, that's really the kingdom that Jesus invites us into, something that no one's ever seen before, that is, is something totally different than anyone expects. And when we embrace that, when we live that, and when we embody that, it makes a difference. That's Jesus, what Jesus wants to invite his disciples into and teach them about is that we are to live differently, that we are to be completely other than what the world expects. This is what we're told in Mark 10, 41 through 44. It says, when the 10 heard it, the other 10 disciples, they began to be indignant, which is a nice polite way of saying really angry at James and John. Jesus called to him, them to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. For whoever would be great amongst you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Um, first of all, why do you think that the ten were angry? Do you think it was because James and John were being very rude to their teacher? Or do you think it was because James and John beat them to Jesus in asking the question that they all wanted to ask? 
That's why they were angry. We know it is because Jesus calls them and gives them all a lesson. He knows they're all thinking the exact same thing. Peter, Andrew, all the other disciples, they want to be just like James and John, and they're just a little upset that James and John beat them to ask him the question. We wanted to have the best seats. We wanted to have the glory, and now James and John are going to get it. But Jesus calls them all together, and he wants to teach them a lesson about greatness. And it's not even going to be the first time that he's taught them this lesson. Just a chapter earlier, Again, right after Jesus has predicted his death, he has to have another conversation about greatness. Back in chapter nine, this is what happens. They came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, Jesus asked the disciples, what were you discussing on the way here? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the 12, and he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. So this is the second time he's now teaching the same lesson. And I love that passage because it, Jesus says, hey, what were you talking about a minute ago when we were, were on the way here? You want to tell me? And of course, no one is going to tell him because they're all completely embarrassed about what they were asking about. And Jesus is wanting to help them see we need to be different. We need to stop having this conversation amongst who's the greatest, who's going to have the most glory. That's not what this kingdom is about. And what Jesus says to them in in today's passage, he says, you know the rulers of the Gentiles, right? You know the Romans and you know the Herodians and you know these other cultures and groups of people who are obsessed with power and privilege and authority and they like to look down on the ones below them and they like to look down on slaves and, and people who are less fortunate and they like to make sure it's clear that they have the power and they have the privilege. And he says, but that's not who we are. We're not like them. Jesus says, it shall not be so among you. But unfortunately, all too often, even in the church, it is so among us, isn't it? We're no different. The things that we chase in our life, the things that we have ambition for, the way that we treat other people is often not distinct enough from everywhere else in the world, from every other people group on earth. Sometimes Christians have acted like rulers and bullies. And it grieves the heart of God because that is not why he died. And it's not who he's asked us to be. The hard truth is, is if we really do trust God, if we really love him and we believe that he has been who he was for us, that he continues to be who he is for us, then we shouldn't cling to power and privilege tightly because our hope isn't in our hands, it's in his. We don't need power and privilege. We don't need influence. We don't need comfort and security because all of our needs have been settled in the hands of Jesus Christ on the cross. And so why cling to those things anymore? We have been freed to be servants. We've been freed, as Jesus says, to be slaves of all. That word is doulas. He means it's the same word for an actual slave in the day. Who their entire day would be about serving the needs of someone else, answering the calls of someone else. Do we think of ourselves that way as Christians? As slaves to all, servants to all? I think there's people struggling in their faith today because too many followers of Jesus have sold Christianity and the gospel as a way to climb a ladder. And it's the exact reverse of what it is. Christianity is a way to descend the ladder and put ourselves underneath other people. So people have been left discouraged when God asks them to descend the ladder. There's people struggling in their faith because we've assured them that God would never ask anything difficult of them. He would never rob them of their sense of security. And so when pain comes and suffering comes, they can only see it as a punishment instead of an opportunity. 
They don't realize that God may have brought some of the circumstances in their life to be so that they can love and serve other people. To see suffering as a punishment instead of a pathway. And we need to hear the words again, it shall not be so among you. We need to be different. This is why we often say at Chapel Street that we want to be a church, not primarily for ourselves, but for our neighbors. Because that's what God has asked of us. So if we're going to follow the king, then we need to follow the king. But it's difficult, and we can't become that kind of church by default because of what goes on in our own hearts. And so I'd like for us to take an inventory real quick and ask us a couple of questions. What does our use of time suggest about who we are serving most often? What does our use of time suggest about who we're serving most often? What does the content of our prayers suggest who we are serving most often? What does our use of money suggest about who we are serving most often? And what about our motivations? Why do we serve? Why do we give? Why do we pray? Is it for our recognition? Is it for our furtherment? Or is it for someone else's? Why are we as a church seeking what we are seeking? Why are we looking for it? What are we asking God to do for us and through us? The real challenge in a text like this is how. How can we be these people that Jesus is calling us to be? Because I don't know about you, when I read that and I hear Jesus say, I need you to be a servant of all, Andrew. I need you to lay yourself low. I say, Jesus, I don't know if I can do that. Because there's anxiety in my heart if I'm going to have to do that. about fear about who's going to take care of me. Who's going to make sure I have what I need if I'm laying myself down for other people. We will never be able to let go of that fear until we read verse 45, which says this. One of the most shocking lines in all of scripture. Even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Following the king is possible only because of the king's ransom. I mean, I almost would love to just preach a sermon on that one single verse for us to sit here and listen to those words. Even the son of man even Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the one who sat in glory through whom all of the universe was created, who upholds it by the word of his power, who is the radiance of all God's glory, who is perfect in nature and goodness, even he decided he was going to get to the bottom of the ladder. He was going to descend it all the way. That is, just so you know, not even close to anything that is said in any other religion on earth, that the God of the universe would descend the ladder to the bottom of rung and give his life for everyone else above him. It's astounding. Jesus is exactly right. We don't, we don't know what we're asking of him because we don't really know who he is. We have no idea of our own needs. We don't need greatness and glory. We need ransom. We need the love of Jesus. We need someone who can make the payment needed for us to be remade, to be set free, to let go of our own needs and compulsions and fears. And the whole story of scripture for us that we read from Genesis to Revelation is the story of a God who sees our brokenness and our need of ransom and who gives himself for it to set us free from our enslavement to self-glorification. What Psalm 49, 7 through 8 says, it says, truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life for the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice. 
And then praise God, Jeremiah 31, 11 says, for the Lord has ransomed Jacob and has redeemed him from hands too strong for him. Christ Jesus came into the world and he went first. He never asked anything of us that he didn't say, I'm gonna do it first. I'm gonna drink the cup first. I'm gonna go through the suffering first. I'm gonna hang on a cross first. I'm never gonna ask anything of you that I didn't do for you to a greater degree first. He came to lay himself low to care for all of our needs, to give himself up for us so that all of our longings and desires would be satisfied in him. Philippians 2, one of the best passages in all of scripture says this, have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus who though he was in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. We can put ourselves low because the king put himself low. We can let go of our need for greatness because Jesus Christ has given us greatness in himself. So we asked at the beginning, what's the most glorious gift God could give to you? What should you be asking Jesus for? The most glorious gift God could give you is to make you like his son. There is nothing better to ask him for than to say, Father, make me like that king. Make me like that king who laid himself low and hung on a cross for me. Make me the kind of person who knows so completely I am loved and desired by you and sought by you that I can let go of being great in anybody else's eyes because you've made me great in yours. The greatest gift God could give you is to remake you and shape you into the image of his son. It's the kindest thing God can do for you because it sets you free from your worst enemy, you. This is why Jesus came so that there would be no more anxiety, no more fear, no more uh, worry. Finances no longer govern your security. Suffering no longer steals your hope. And John learned this. The same John who asked this question, you know what he said a few years later? He wrote in this letter, 1 John 3.16, another really great John 3.16. It says this, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Sounds like a very different man. When John saw it, when John knew it, when John realized who this king was, that he could say to the church, he laid down his life for us. We should do the same. No more vying for greatness, no more saying, Jesus, I want the best seat, just saying, I want to be like him. We're free to lay ourselves low. So may we know Christ in such a way that we too let go of our need for greatness and find true joy in becoming like the one who's loved us so perfectly. Let's pray this morning. Father God, I thank you for your great love for us. I thank you for your kindness towards us. I thank you when we read this passage, we see a Savior who didn't get frustrated with his disciples for missing it yes again, for being arrogant, for being self-serving, but a God who simply asked gently, what do you want me to do for you? And in your kindness, you expose to them and you expose to us the malfunction in our hearts so that you can come and meet us and change us and transform us. And God, we pray that we would be a church, a people of God who can truly say of ourselves, we will lay ourselves low for the sake of our neighbors and for the sake of your glory. Lord, may we be a church that say, may we become a servant of all and a slave of all. For even the Son of Man, 
did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Lord, we love you and we pray these things in your name. Amen.
We have a God who's whacked all things out. And before we close this morning, I just want to remind you, if you're a guest with us, if you're brand new, I'm so glad you joined us for worship. I hope it was a blessing to you. We do have a gift for you at our welcome desk, so please stop by and make sure you pick that up. Uh, we also have Advent books for sale as devotionals for your family. If you want to learn a little bit more about them, you can head towards our kitchen as well. But uh, let me leave us with a benediction by just simply reading John's words again from his first letter. 1 John 3.16, by this we know love. He laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives to the brothers. May that be true of Chapel Street North Aurora and Chapel Street Church. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.